You're listening to a Westpac Wire podcast. Westpacwire.com.au. Never in my wildest dreams could I contemplate um, the rate setting we currently have, and nor did I think we needed to. Um, we'd ever get to the point with the sort of QE activity levels from from the Reserve Bank. I mean, it reflects on you know the unique challenges we have, and it also highlights that you know unfortunately over the last five to ten years globally. Central banks have had to do too much of the work. So today we're delving into the key issues facing large businesses, markets and the economy. And because we're lucky enough to be joined by one of the bank's newest executives, we'll also explore his experience and plans for the future. So to get started, I'm Michael Bennett, the editor of Westpac Wire, and I'm joined today by Anthony Miller the group's new chief executive of Westpac Institutional Bank. Thanks for joining us, Anthony. Uh, Pleasure to be here, Michael. Thank you. So, Anthony, the first one, the obvious one, you've recently joined after a long career working for global investment banks. So luckily for us, we've managed to jag your first interview, so to speak. But in all seriousness, can you answer the question of how you came to join Westpac and perhaps walk us through your career to date? Sure. Um, look, it's a, it's a confluence of a couple of things that uh, led me to this point. I mean, first of all, to be CEO of WIB um, is a privileged role in any time and in any uh, environment. But for me in particular, I got to a point where with the role I had, which was a privileged role and a great opportunity at my former employer, I was spending every second week or so in Asia um, in many different countries in Asia. So I was constantly traveling, constantly um, flying. And and so that had sort of reached its uh, use by date, so to speak, in terms of the lifestyle and and the challenges that that imposed upon me. And then contemporaneous with that kind of decision, um, or or at least conclusion, that's what I wanted to do. um, I got into a conversation with uh, Peter King around the opportunity at Westpac. So, um, you know, and it's a role that irrespective of my desire to stay in Australia and be much more focused domestically um, is a role that I would have loved to have been considered for anyway. So um, I was very, very uh, fortunate that um, it it arrived at that time when I'd made a decision to really focus on a role and an opportunity here in Australia. Um, and look, for the last 20 years, I've worked in um, in global banks, global investment banks, and that has been a wonderful experience for me, a wonderful uh, career. Um, and certainly, you know, some unique challenges and some unique opportunities working for firms like Deutsche Bank and Goldman Sachs. Um, and I um, had a wide range of experiences with those firms. And, you know, those experiences, I hope, are going to be very helpful in me making a contribution here at, uh, at Westpac. And I think I saw on your bio or your CV that you studied in Queensland. So am I right in sensing you're a uh, Queenslander originally? No, I'm not. I'm not a Queenslander. I, I finished my last few years of high school in um, Queensland and I did uh, my university studies in, in Queensland, Brisbane. Uh, and then pretty oh, a few years after I finished university, I came to Sydney. So I've spent the vast majority of my life outside of Queensland and in fact grew up in country New South Wales, uh, Northern Territory and, uh, and, a lot, and quite a few years in Canberra as well. Um, before I got to 
to Brisbane. So actually Brisbane is the place I spent least uh, over my entire career and life. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm not a Queenslander, but, uh, and I certainly don't support the Maroons or the uh, Reds and all these sporting teams, but um, uh, certainly lots of friends and family in Queensland, but uh, I think of myself as a Sydney sider. And just to your prior point around travel, I'm, I'm interested how you found it because clearly borders are shut. Um, no one's sort of moving around for business meetings and such. I mean, have, have you enjoyed this period of maybe staying still for a little yeah, bit longer I, than normal? A very good question. I, I absolutely loved the, um, the first few months of the COVID lockdown. I know that sounds slightly perverse, but the chance to spend so much more time you know, at home with the family was just an incredible, um, uh, incredible um, environment or experience for me. Um, certainly, I didn't miss uh, the the trip to the airport and then getting on the plane and then travelling and then going to a hotel, etc. Um, but I must admit, now after nine months, uh, I'm, I'm I'd be open to a, a a trip to the airport and a trip somewhere. Um, so I've certainly enjoyed it, um, and I've been incredibly grateful for for the the opportunity um, that I've had to spend more time at home, spend more time here in the one in the one place. But I'm certainly very keen to be back out in front of clients and, and, and seeing the teams around the country and overseas. And so I'm looking forward to the day I can get back on a plane. Well, that's a good segue to change tack a bit into banking more generally, because there's clearly just massive change going on in terms of new competition and technology etc. How do you think about these trends when it comes to institutional banking at the moment? Yeah, look, it's it's um, it's obviously the, the challenge of the age. I think, you know, banking, uh, institutional banking in particular, but I think banking generally is a technology arms race. And, you know, we've got work to do. We all acknowledge that at Westpac and we're onto it. I think um, for me, it's very interesting is that, you know, clients will want, and in particular, are going to insist on an ability to do as much as they possibly can with us in an automated digital online sort of setting. Uh, but what that does is allows us to then provide those commoditized products, those services, which are really just a arms race on price and efficiency and execution in a via electronic mean and, and that medium. And that is, is healthy for us because, you know, it allows us to be competitive um, and also allows us to prosecute business very safely because clearly, you know, the transparency, the audit trail on electronic engagement is, is absolutely uh, inc incontrovertible. So, you know, it makes a lot of sense and the good clients want that. And so that also helps. But more importantly, what it also means is that the human or person interaction between bank and client is even more important because it is less frequent. And so when it does occur, it is so much more important, more impactful, more consequential. And so the more we get the technology spend right and we get the technology engagement with clients right, the more we have to make sure our people are the best and that they're the best trained and that they have the skills and the ability to add value to the client. And so funnily enough, what technology is really, I think, ultimately doing in institutional banking is like a back to the future. So if you think about banking 50 years ago, you know, you had your trusted private advisor or your trusted private banker or your trusted banking partner, and it was a deeply personal relationship. Um, and I think that's where we go 
because technology will take away all of the other stuff which over the last 30 years we thought was banking, which is delivering content, de delivering knowledge. I mean, Google has rendered all of that redundant. It's about judgment. It's about trust. It's about insight. And so the technology um, arms race just means we've got to spend even more time uh, training, managing and leading our people because they become the key differentiator once you um, get the technology stack right. And now I'll put you on the spot a bit here because I know you've only recently started and you're getting your feet under the desk, so to speak. But can you give any insight into how you're thinking about your strategy for the institutional bank going forward? I mean, I know Peter has set his you know, priorities around fix, simplify, perform, but how are you thinking about embedding that and and the future for the institutional bank? Look, you know, I, I early days and, and I reserve the right to 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 tweak and adjust my my answer here if you if you come back to me in a couple of months time. But certainly um, you know it's about just getting this portfolio in the right shape in terms of how we're operating. So we're just operating safely and, and sustainably. Um, and so that's that's the sort of overwhelming sort of key priority for me just at the moment. And people have done an enormous amount of work over the last year, two years, and, you know, we're on the way to delivering that, but we've just got to stay the course and get that done through, you know, FY21. But interestingly, you know, I've been challenged about, you know, where do we grow? How do we, you know, how do we improve? Uh, the financial performance of this business. And I've already, you know, started to form some thoughts based on, um, you know, observations, certainly some client interactions I've had, but also, you know, from um, quite a number of uh, people that I've had a chance to speak to, go to client meetings with, um, their insights and their judgment has been really impressive, actually. I've been super impressed with how much they've thought about the business, how much they know about the business and how much they think they can deliver for the business if we do this or we do that. And I've been really, really interested in that feedback because I think that's also something I want to spend a bit more time on is spending a lot, you know, time with those people who are at the coalface day to day because their judgments and insights will be really, really critical uh, to some of the decisions I think we'll, we'll need to make. But, you know, early days, um, certainly anchored around making sure in our client selection, you know, we're very clear about who those clients are and why, uh, identifying what it is that we can provide to those clients and then making sure we are overwhelming and holistic in what we deliver to those clients, um, making sure that risk is completely aligned with our um, uh, focus and then also looking to um, then in time uh, diversify some of what we do, um, but obviously only doing that after I've demonstrated or we've demonstrated to the board and, and, and regulators and everyone else that we're operating in a really safe and, and a very um, risk responsible way. And in terms of the challenges, I mean, Westpac recently reported its full year results and some of the challenges were borne out in the WIB result. One of them, I mean, there's obviously margin pressure and impairments in, in in that period, but one of them, I imagine, is just these incredibly low interest rates. I mean, did you ever think or imagine that Australia would be doing QE and have the cash rate at 10 basis points? Yeah, I it's, mean, a, it's a, a great question, Michael. I, absolutely not. I mean, you know, 
I don't know if ever in a day, you know, you could all, all you could think of was Australian interest rates, and I, you know, at sort of five, six, seven, eight percent. I mean, I can remember in the early nineties in the recession, I suppose that was described famously as the recession we had to have. You know, interest rates of 18, 19%. I remember my family, my parents talking about a mortgage rate of 20%, uh, which is just eye watering uh, in the extreme. So um, I would say that, uh, you know, I never in my wildest dreams could have contemplated um, the rate setting we currently have. And nor did I think we needed to, um, we'd ever get to the point with the sort of QE activity levels from, from the Reserve Bank. I mean, it reflects on, you know, the unique challenges we have and it also highlights that you know unfortunately over the last five to ten years globally central banks have had to do too much of the work and that really um, government fiscal policy uh, policy reform um, should have been the vehicle by which we drove growth and attempted to you know um, create uh, jobs and 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 the, and the like, and unfortunately, the central banks, while that was done, not done, have had to take too much of uh, the burden to try and address that, and their mechanisms available to them are relatively blunt and um, crude when it's all said and done, and certainly completely exhausted. And so, um, it's a bit of a tragedy as to where we find ourselves today. But it does feel also like. You know, as they famously say, it's darkest just before dawn. Now governments around the world and elections are highlighting this, are adjusting their policies, and we can expect to see some real fiscal um, policy leadership to to drive the uh, global economy from here. Yeah, they've definitely stepped up on the fiscal side, and 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 that seems to me to be making this cycle or just this period incredibly unusual if, if you think about the impairments or the bad debt cycle and you just look at the corporates out there some seem to be absolutely going gangbusters and others are on their knees so how, how would you describe and explain this the situation we face yeah look i mean it's a it's a it's a great question it's a hard one to answer you know without sort of um creating a controversial qualification um but I would say that I sort of feel like what, what we've been through is obviously there was this COVID crisis and, and in a way the initial response was just to ensure there was enough liquidity, whether it was liquidity on the company's balance sheet, liquidity in people's um, savings account by being paid, you know, JobKeeper and enough liquidity with, you know, governments and central banks buying securities and supporting markets, i.e. let's just get through this incredibly unique challenge and so the liquidity was the response but now as we start to wind back the liquidity and as we start to sort of emerge from COVID it's going to be much more around well what is your business model and is that business model or the way you execute on that business model going to survive in what we all know is going to be a changed world post-COVID now how much we've changed is arguably going to be a little less than what we thought three months ago but it will change and there'll be this new new environment that we're in but is your business model and is your ability to operate once we pull back on this liquidity once we on some of this support is your business model good enough or are you executing well enough on your business model to survive and i think that's going to make the next 12 to 18 months uh, a bit of a challenge but also a, a really um, unique opportunity as well um, and in particular an opportunity for us as we 
partner up with those companies that need help to get through that um, adjustment or partner up with those companies and institutions and others who will take advantage of that and look to a buy or uh, further improve their business model. Uh, and so, you know, uh, I'm thinking that it, uh, it represents some serious challenges, but also some significant opportunities for us. And, and so perhaps gives a feel of what some of the biggest issues corporates are telling you about. I mean, I think in March, April, they all rushed to draw down on facilities from institutional banks like Westpac's, but then obviously things have turned out a bit better than perhaps were feared back then. And then, so what, what are they talking about now? Is it, is it the China tensions? Is it borders? Is it vaccine? Is it going digital? I mean, there's a lot they could, they could be worried and, but also optimistic about. Yeah, look, um, I suppose just to try to sort of answer that, I mean, definitely trade, the tension with China, how does it play out in particular? How will it play out now that with Biden in as President of the United States, you know, you'll have a multilateral response to China rather than what we've seen over the last couple of years, which is quite a unilateral type response and a multilateral response where everyone is working together to balance and work out a new equilibrium with China. What does that mean? What risks come out of that? Um, that's something that's in front of people's minds, particularly, you know, um, exporters, but more importantly, businesses that thrive or are adjacent to exporters. So I think that's definitely one. I think the other one is people are very much asking, well, look, there's been so much support provided to the economy what is the, you know, are we going to take this support back? What is the support, what does the economy look like with the support withdrawn? And am I ready to cope with that? And so, you know, um, trying to understand what the withdrawal of that support will look like and how it will impact their business model um, is is yet to uh, yet to be sort of clear for everyone. And so that that's a, a worry. And then equally, um, People also saying, well, how do I, what's my new operating rhythm and, you know, how many in the office, how many out of the office is something that also a lot of people have been grappling with and, and what the knock-on effects from that, you know, that remains a, a sort of a, a, a key issue. And then the last one, which I think is sort of the, the, a bit of a sleeper is, well, how do we grow from here? You know I mean? We've, we've reduced rates to zero. We've got liquidity everywhere. Governments have loaded up uh, massive amounts of debt. Um, what other levers can we pull to gr drive growth? Um, and normally we'd say, well, let's just get more trade, let's get more uh, interaction with other economies going, but clearly we're dealing with a geopolitical environment that suggests that it's not going to be as easy, as straightforward as it should be. And so therefore, what's the growth outlook like? And, and therefore, what are the opportunities um, going forward? That, that's in my mind, one of the bigger ones that, you know, is sort of, in front of us, but we're not really um, tackling at this point. Yeah, and on that growth point, um, in terms of M&A, mergers and acquisitions, an area you've obviously got a lot of experience in, it was, it's been understandably pretty quiet the first six, nine months of the year, but recently it seems to be picking up. I mean, are you getting a sense that will continue? And, and that obviously matters for Westpac or WIB because, it, you know, Westpac helps banks helps um, corporate, sorry, finance a lot of these deals. So yeah, is there any sign of life there? Look, I think there is. I think, um, you know, from what I've been told, what I'm seeing and what people are telling me, you know, the M&A 
opportunity or the M&A cycle looks to be picking up and there's certainly a lot of um, debate, a lot of talk, a lot of activity um, being thought about, um, but it hasn't quite gone as active as, as perhaps we were expecting, but certainly there's a lot of, a lot of work being done. I think, you know, we've got some of the key building blocks uh, for M&A activity in terms of very available, very open, uh, very uh, significant liquidity in the debt markets. Equally, uh, for the acquirer, they can easily raise equity for the right M&A or the right, right opportunity. So those are important drivers. However, balancing that is, you know, valuations are arguably slightly stretched, you know, given the liquidity that's in the market. And so targets are, if you will, a little more expensive than um, they should be if, um, uh, you know, for the, for, the, for the buyer. And so, you know, we've got some of the building blocks for M&A and then we've got some um, some frustrations for M&A, which, as I said, is that the target share price is higher than perhaps uh, it should be given you know uh, its particular performance. But that's due to all the support in the market. And then the one other variable is um, this overwhelming focus, rightly so, at the government regulatory level about growing or protecting and growing jobs. And you know, an acquisition inevitably requires some level of regulatory or other approval. And so, you know, I'm interested to, I'd be interesting to see whether there would be an M&A that would be approved if it was based on a massive amount of cost synergies, a massive amount of job reduction. And so I think in my mind, while there's a lot of reasons why M&A should pick up and we're hearing a lot of, uh, a lot of talk and we're in fact seeing a lot of activity yet to, to go public, um, is the regulatory and political environment in a place where that M&A can be successfully prosecuted. Um, that's, that's one other or one significant sort of unknown at the moment in terms of the M&A cycle. And just to finish on, aside from COVID, one of the biggest issues the world continues to face is climate change. And related to that has been this massive growth in ESG and, and um, sustainable finance. Is, is that a space that you just expect will continue to expand? And, and how does Westpac think about that? Oh, it's a great question. I think, you know, it's absolutely a, a top priority for me, a top priority for WIB. Um, we must get um, our investment in that right. Um, and we're working on what that looks like. So I'm, I'm excited about what we can and should do there. We now have everyone going in the one direction on um, dealing with climate change. So I think the investment and cycle and the opportunity therefore around climate change and everything that that requires uh, is now um, game on globally and we will be part of that both you know Australia and certainly as Westpac. Fantastic business in terms of our infrastructure and our renewables capability but I think you know that's uh, that gives us a great beachhead and the question is how can we add and diversify to that and become that chosen partner for everyone who's looking to make the requisite investment um, in climate change, technology, infrastructure, and everything that comes with it. Well, Anthony, as always, great to chat and particularly get your views on how you're thinking about your new role. So thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. A real pleasure. Thank you, Michael. That's all from us today at Westpac Wire. For more, head to westpacwire.com.au.